Well, have you ever felt like you just can't get somewhere in life? You want to see something happen or some events come about and you just feel like you you can't reach that satisfaction. Have you ever felt like the the narrative of life ends up being just a a narrative of swings and roundabouts? Ever been frustrated that achievement doesn't satisfy, that wisdom, no matter how much you've got, you don't have a crystal ball for the future and things don't play out the way that you might like them to? Have you ever stood back at life and gone, what is the point? That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes has been prompting us to do over the last eight weeks as we've seen life from his many different angles. To stand back and ask the question, why am I here? What is life about? Where do I get meaning in life? Over the last three weeks, I think, uh, last eight weeks, I think Ecclesiastes has shown us three things. One, it's shown us that a search for meaning in life is a good thing. We should stand back and we should ask ourselves the question, why are we here? What, what, what makes sense of life? How do we get meaning out of life? It's a, it's a right question to view the reality of the world and ask, where do we find meaning? Secondly, it's shown us in a profound way the emptiness of the things we seek. The emptiness of chasing after things that don't satisfy That if this is all there is to life, the here and the now, the flesh and the blood, if you live and you die and that's the end, then life is meaningless. Thirdly, it's drawn us towards an answer. Uh, A view of the world that actually does solve life's problems. It's, It's drawn us into an answer that truly satisfies and makes sense of the world that we live in like no other answer the world has ever seen. And the last six verses of the book of Ecclesiastes act for us as really the punchline of the whole book. They bring all these three areas together and give you a summary of all that you need to know. Uh, by the end of today's talk, I want to pause and uh, give you guys a, a chance to ask questions. Questions that might have come up throughout the book, questions that you've got. There'll be a number on the screen that you can um, see up there now. It'll probably stay there. Text those questions in uh, and we'll, we'll put the questions up on the screen and can work through them at the end. But it's a great chance to go, if you've got questions about this book, ask them. Let's see where, where we get to together. But this last section, as you kind of look at it, one thing strikes you as a little bit odd. It's Obviously not written by the teacher of Ecclesiastes. It's written by someone else, a collaborator, uh, one who's brought the whole book together. Have a look at verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he consistently taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored and arranged many proverbs. Now, I don't know many people that go around and talk about themselves in the third person. In addition to Rowan being Australian, he's a guy who preaches at Auckland Evangelical Church and is married to Sarah. It just feels really awkward for me to say that, right? Like, who who talks about themselves in the third person? No one, or not any normal person. Um, What we see, though, is that someone's kind of pulling together um, what, what has happened, these accounts of this wise teacher. And he's pulling them together to show us what wisdom it is. We constantly see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that this teacher is teaching wisdom and knowledge. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you would have heard me define what wisdom is. I said this, wisdom is two things. Number one, it's knowing reality. It's knowing reality. And then number two, it's living in light of that reality. Knowing what really is real and then living in light of it. See, see the wise, they know reality and they live in light of that reality. But fools, they do the opposite. They either deny reality, 
Like the boy who could fly, they stand on top of a roof and jump thinking you can fly, but you can't. And and you crash. Uh, You do what I did when I was a kid. I was at a friend's place and we're seeing how far down some stairs we could jump. And so I thought it would be fun to go, you know, uh, I'm going to stand at the top of a flight of stairs and jump down the whole flight and land on a concrete floor at the bottom barefoot and it will be fine. Thing is, it wasn't. It fractured my heel. You know, it just, I wasn't living in the light of reality. Um, <laughs> I didn't think it would, 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 would do that. We get pictures of foolish people throughout the, the, the Bible's narrative. We get the, the fool in Luke 12, who was this rich man, a farmer who stored up all these crops. And he said to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to store up all these crops and build huge barns, knock down my old ones. And I'm going to sit back and sit pretty when everything's sorted in life. And it will all be brilliant. That's what life is like, just living for the here and the now and enjoying the future. And that very night, his life was taken from him. If you think life is about the accumulation of possessions, then that's how we'll act. We'll we'll store up treasures on earth. (laughs) But if not, if there's more than just the here and now, then it's a grave error to get reality wrong, isn't it? If there actually is more... It's critical for us as as people to get wisdom, to know what reality is and live in light of it. It's critical for humankind to learn wisdom because otherwise we're living in a fairy world. Well, what the book of Ecclesiastes has done is show us reality in a way that many of us couldn't see the full extent. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 11. He says, the saying of the wise are like goads. The point of this book, although it's frustrating and depressing at times to stand back and hear that life sucks, if this is all there is, the point of this book is to act like a goad. Now, a goad is, is a sheep prodder. I talked about it a little bit last week. It's you know the stick that the shepherd has to kind of help the sheep get where they need to be, where the shepherd wants them. It's like, you need to be over there. And so they, they, they stick them with a goad. It helps them get to that place. And that's what Ecclesiastes as a whole book functions to do for us. It provokes us, it paints a picture of life and to see different aspects of life so we might be where its ultimate author wants us. That we might see the world as God sees it. We might see reality as it really is and then live in light of that reality. It's a, it's a brilliant piece of literature. It's not really meant to be broken up into small sections. You want to get the full punch of Ecclesiastes, go home and read the whole book in one hit. And you'll get this picture painted for you that acts like a shepherd's goad. And leaves you, I think, with this kind of hole, this, this part of us that says, well, what is the answer to these issues in life? The picture that the writer paints, if you've been with us, you would have seen, is that reality is that satisfaction and meaning are not found in the places we normally look. That wealth and achievement and popularity and knowledge and relationships and sex and drugs and rock and roll, all those things. It even talks about music. That, that even in all those things, none of them really satisfy. None provide ultimate meaning. They, they won't deliver what we think they will. And, and the advantage of the book of Ecclesiastes has been this view of really this greatest person the world has ever seen. This, this guy who had it all. It's the view of a man that's from, from Solomon's viewpoint. A man who's done everything you ever wanted to do. A man who, is, who has and owns everything you've ever wanted to have. A man who's seen everything you wanted to see, who, who knows all and has done it all ten times better than us. He's the king of Israel. He was amazing. And what he's shown us is that 
everything that we'd ever hoped for, everything we'd ever dreamed of having in this life, in this world, every goal we've had, every pleasure we live for will amount to nothing. Because in the end, we all die. None will deliver because life is robbed by death. And again, you're left with this question. What's the point? What's the point of life? What's the point of of living? Well, I think the point is to leave you with a gaping hole to say, what is the meaning of life? How do we think about the world we live in? What will go on past death? Is there anything? It's to make us ask the hard questions of where do we find meaning in life? And so this editor at the end pulls together the threads and gives us the answer, the conclusion. Have a look at verse 13 of chapter 12. When all has been heard, when every little avenue of the maze of life has been explored, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep His commands. Because this is for all humanity. This is the whole of man. Fear God, keep his commands. If you look at this verse on the screen, this this is what it means to be human. Do you see that? This is the whole of man, the whole of humanity. (laughs) Here is where meaning in life is to be found. This is what it is to be human, is to actually fear God. You want to work out meaning in life, then you need to recognize that it's about not us, but the one who made us, the one who sustains us. It's not just some meaning for some people in some place who call themselves Christians. It's not some um, postmodern view of what's good for me is good for me and what's good for you is good for you. The claim here is that God is God over all, over everyone. He made and sustains everyone and you. And the way to get meaning in life is to recognize who he is and live in light of that reality. You might be a really wise person. It might be someone who, you know, really gets property or finance or, or education or knowledge or you've got a field of expertise that you're just really good in. You might be a brilliant parent or, I don't know, you might be brilliant at playing Xbox. You might, you, might, you might be really wise in a whole number of different areas, right? But if we fail to see God as he is, you've stumbled at the first hurdle of wisdom. You've missed what the universe is about. Fear God. And keep his commands. That's the answer of Ecclesiastes. But what does it mean to fear God? What is it kind of talking about as we, as we think through that idea? I think fear is a pretty common emotion. Um, one of my friends, who will remain anonymous, although you might be able to work it out, one of my friends, a close friend to me at the moment, um, he's moving overseas at some point soon, anyway, has an irrational fear of spiders. Like an irrational fear of spiders. Uh, I, I've been um, with him in Australia where there's like real spiders that kind of do real damage and tried to help him work through this fear and got him at one point to touch a redback, even though it was dead. And he actually did it, but he's got this irrational fear. He just, he can't handle them. This week I asked him, I said, um, look, why are you so afraid of spiders? And quick as a flash, he gave this answer that I was so wasn't ready for. You know what he said? He looks at me and says, nothing should have eight legs. <laughs> that is just creepy. Like, why, why, why would stuff be made with eight legs? Six is fine. I get two. Why do you need eight legs? It's just gross. And I'm like, that's crazy. What, what if, okay. 
We fear all sorts of things, don't we? Uh, For some of you, it might be little arachnids that produce fear in you. For others, it might be the prospect of being alone or being rejected. For others of us, it might be the fear of success even. That if we do go well and we do achieve good things, then we've got to keep that level up. And if we don't, well, then we've let ourselves and the people around us and our reputation down. We fear all sorts of things, don't we? Whatever its form, fear is something that we've all encountered at some point in our lives. Yet in the Bible, not all fear is the same. To fear God is to recognize that we were made by God and to live for him. That's our very purpose in life. You see, the reason that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us for why we're to fear God is because all things will be judged by him. Everything we do in life matters. Someone sees it. It doesn't just end in death and disappear into a vapor of nothingness. God sees all. The way you live matters. The one who made you sees it and we'll all be held accountable for how we've acted. It is counted. Every thought, every action you have is counted because God counts it. It's all done before him. We don't come to create our own meaning in life. We don't think, oh, this is what I think my life is about. (laughs) Our meaning is found before God who sees all, knows all, weighs all, who created all and says this is how we are to live. And there are two ways, I think, that Scripture talks about this fear of God. Or fear, at least. The first way the Bible talks about um, fear is the fear of God, and we'll get to that in a second. But the second way that I want to show you about now is the fear of everything else. It's a second kind of fear, type two of fear, that the Bible speaks of is our desire to control the world around us. It's the fear of losing what's important to us, whether it be our job, our family, our reputation, our health, our lives. Sometimes that means hiding from what we fear in the hope that it can't find us. Other times it means trying to control every detail of our lives, clinging tight to what matters most to us, so we fear everything else. That kind of fear the Bible talks about pulls you away from God and tries to put you in the center of the universe to control what's going on. It tells you that you're on your own. You, can, you, you have to sort this out by yourself. There's no one who cares for you. There's no one who helps you tells you that God isn't concerned about the way you live. It makes giants out of the things that we fear so big that we think God can't solve our problems. Have you had that type of fear? When it comes to that type of fear, the Bible says, abandon it. Throw it away. Yes, you're right, you can't control it, but God is in control. And come to him. Have a look at Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, says God, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. What a better person to have by our side than the creator and sustainer of all things. There's a sense in which that fear of the things of the world really needs to be driven out. Do not fear, but trust God. Yet there's another type of fear that the Bible speaks about. And it's a type of fear that we must have. We must have. It's called the fear of God. And it's the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think there's something 
this, this view of the fear of God. It's something that's missing drastically from our lives and the lives of the world around us. It was something that was clearly understood in the Old Testament. Let me just run you through some passages. I can write the references down and check them up later, but they'll be on the screen. And see how fear of God is understood throughout the Old Testament. Look at um, Exodus 14, verse 31. Exodus 14, 31. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. God's power is on view that wiped out a whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Deuteronomy um, 6, verse 24. Deuteronomy 6, 24. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Psalm 19 verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Psalm 112 verse 1, hallelujah, happy is the man who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. Or Proverbs 14 verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning people away from the snares of death. This kind of fear of God is a good fear. It is good for us. It stands up to all our other fears. It brings wisdom and joy and happiness and rest and life. Yes, it's scary. God is scary. But he is good. Now, often we, we, we think of this God who is a fearful God as like the Old Testament God. I don't know how many times I've heard people think, oh yeah, the, the God of the Old Testament is like this this fearsome um, God of wars. And then you get to the New Testament and it seems like Jesus comes as, as the God of love and God has changed how he acts. But no, the Bible is far more rich than that. It portrays God as he is, as he really is. We mustn't minimize him. See, the New Testament says the same thing. Have a look. Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I'll show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. There is more going on than what we see and hear right now. Death is not the end. And Jesus says, fear God. View him as he is. Don't muck about with him. Realize what's at stake. Look at 1 Peter 1, 17. Peter says this, And if you address as father the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. You're to live your lives now as people who trust Jesus in fear in some ways, recognizing that where we're at now is only temporary. You can see the threads pull together. There's little bits of answers here the whole way through of Ecclesiastes. What matters in life? What do we search for? We search for things that go beyond death. And the key to anything beyond death is the God who holds the keys to death and life. Fear him. Respond to him rightly. Often I think we read the word fear throughout the New Testament and we translate it as something like reverence. You know, have a, have a right sort of reverence or respect for God. Um, but I think that's totally wrong. <laughs> I think it's lost some of its kind of power and the terrifying nature of God. God is not merely a figure of respect or reverence. 
I think as you think about who we respect, there are a number of people that we respect. We might say we respect God, but we respect other people too. Um, We respect sports players. We respect uh, sometimes politicians. (laughs) Uh, We respect people that have a role of leadership. I think one of the people that New Zealand at the moment respects the most is perhaps this guy, Richie McCaw. Um, Richie McCaw, brilliant player, great leader of New Zealand's team to take the Rugby World Cup. Um, Many people respect this guy, right? There's a good level of respect for him. Um, Some people have him as their hero. Others have this right reverence for him. I was in a cafe last week, catching up uh, with a couple of people, as I do. Um, Anyway, just a normal day in the cafe, nothing kind of strange that went on. And then after the the day was finished, I went to pick uh, Lara up from kindy. And as I came to kindy, uh, her kindy teacher said to me, Hey, I saw you today at lunchtime in the cafe. I was like, oh, cool. I didn't see you. I was meeting with some people. She's like, yeah, yeah. She said, I came back and I said to Lara, guess what, Lara? I saw someone famous. Uh, and Lara's like, oh, who? And I'm like, I'm not that famous, you know, you, you have to, <laughs> and she's like, I saw your dad, but, you know, I saw Richie McCall there. And I'm like, who? <laughs> Sorry? She said, because oh, she said Richie to start with, and then Richie McCall. I said, who? Oh, right. Where did you see him? And she's like, it was in the, it was about two meters away from you. I was sitting in a cafe in Auckland last week, two meters away from the king of rugby. Right? The most capped player in rugby union's history ever. 148 test caps. This is the man. He was standing two meters away from me. I respect him tremendously. But I didn't even know he was there. I didn't even know he was there. In Exodus chapter 20, Israel come a distance away from God. God comes down to speak to them, the Ten Commandments, to tell them how to live. Now that he's saved them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he he, he comes and he stands on Mount Sinai. And Israel are gathered around the bottom of Mount Sinai and, and God descends. Listen to this, Exodus 20 verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountains surrounded by smoke. When people saw it, they trembled. They stood at a distance. You speak to us. And we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let, God to speak, don't let God speak to us or we will die. There's more than respect there, isn't there? There's more than respect or reverence going on. They were trembling with fear. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, was at the top of a mountain that they were at the base of. And they're freaking out. They see the power of this God who spoke and the universe was created, who holds everything in his hands, controls the wind and the waves, the superpowers of the world are, are in his palm. You know, that Proverbs 21 says, a king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. <laughs> there is no one else like this God. He sustains your life. He is worthy of more than mere respect. He's God. So Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness towards you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. Yes, God is a loving God. He has shown his love for us in his son so clearly. Yet there is also a right terror and fear we need to have before the one whom we've wronged. 
the one whom we've ignored at times and rejected. Too often we domesticate God. We might respect him. We might not. But we think that his love cancels out his power and his holiness and his terror and his fear. It's true that God is love, but he is not only love. He is not only love. There's a much deeper richness in the Bible's picture of our creator of the universe. He's also powerful and stern and not to be messed with. He is the one who drives out all other fear because there is none to fear beside him. Consider God's kindness and severity, says Paul. Early in the 20th century, a writer by the name of P.T. Forsythe spoke these, I think, helpful words for us to reflect on. As we come to the end of Ecclesiastes and consider what it means to fear God, he said this. If we spoke less about God's love and more about his holiness, more about his judgment, we should say much more when we did speak of his love. See, if God just forgives everyone, we have this picture of a God who's like, oh, it's all fine, everything's good. Then the death of his son is worthless, useless. Why, why did he do that? The need for someone to die becomes laughable when you have a God that's like, oh, it's all fine, don't worry about it, whatever. The idea that the way I act matters is just a non-event. No, the God of the Bible is a just God. He's majestic, he's holy, he's different from everything and everyone else. He's terrifyingly powerful to create and sustain the universe. And on that basis, he calls you and me to trust him, to look at the world as it really is. He is in control. To fear the Lord is to be like Moses. Do you remember? At the burning bush removing his shoes because he was standing on a holy ground. Who am I to walk near this God? It's to be like the woman at the well when Jesus meets her in John 4, who comes face to face with the one who knew everything about her. The one who knew all the things that she'd done, her ugly past and who she was and told it to her, and at the same time offered her life forever. She runs to her friends and tells them, come, see the man who told me everything I ever knew. It's to be like Jesus' closest friends and followers, in the midst of a storm at sea. Terrible waves, fearing for their life. But then they stand back and see Jesus calm the storm with a word, be still. And this is what they say in Mark 4. They were terrified. And ask one another, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. There's a right fear we need to have before this God. The kind of fear that needs to grasp the wonder of the news that that powerful and almighty and right God would take on flesh. Enter into a world where those who he created want nothing to do with him and rescue us from the clutches of death, from the rebellion that we deserve. To die in our place and face God's judgment on us. That is amazing, isn't it? Terrifying to think we can walk near this God, but amazing at the same time to know that because of Jesus we can. To fear God is to be utterly blown away because of Jesus, that we can be called the children of God. 
We can call him our dad. Enemies. Now united with our father. The best way that I can think of to describe how this works is a bit like this photo. See, I think God is like a massive hurricane. A huge, huge hurricane. A hurricane that in its power and reach has enough strength to uproot whole countries and rip apart all sorts of things. To cover massive amounts of ground, to uproot anything in its, in its path. To go anywhere it wants. To throw buses and houses and kind of whole estates into the air. There's, there's a right more than respect for a hurricane, isn't there? You see something the size of that and how, how large it is compared to the curvature of, of the earth. That's taken from the International Space Station. God is phenomenally powerful. He's terrifying. And whether you like it or not, no one is out of his reach. He sustains every single one of us. Me, you, your parents, your na- Everyone. And everything you've done and everything you've thought is on view before him. He sees all, knows all, and rightly should judge all of us and throw us away. Pluck us off the face of this earth and throw us to oblivion. For we have said at so many times, I don't want to live for you. But here's where the fear of God is counterintuitive. Trying to run from this God is like trying to run from a hurricane. You're not going to get away from him. You will lose. He sees all, knows all. He's the ultimate power of all things. But if you run to him, if you run right into the center of this God, right into his son who died in your place, you have what you see in the middle of the eye of the storm, a perfect calm. Forgiveness offered to us. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's terrifying. But at the center, we see forgiveness offered to us. That's what it means to fear God. Not to run from him. You'll be thrown away, but to run to him. To run to his son, who's paid that price for us. Fearing God means that God is in your, in your mind and in your heart. So powerful and holy And so amazingly awesome that you would never dare to run away from him. That you would only dare to run to him. Fearing God is not another requirement of the way we're to live in this world. It's like something else I've got to do. It's it's the way you receive his forgiveness. It's the way you come to Jesus to walk to him reverently, humbly. Not presuming that you deserve anything. Not presuming you're owed anything, but on your knees to the God who made you and sustained you and says, I am sorry for I have not treated you as I should. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus died in my place. Please welcome me as your child. This terrifyingly powerful and holy God says every time, yes, welcome home, my child. The price has been paid in Jesus. It's an incredibly amazing position that you and I can delight in. In the midst of the storm that is the world where there's a struggle for meaning and purpose and we're trying to work out what's going on. It's like life is a big hurricane. 
Yeah, we get to stand at its center, knowing there is purpose, knowing there is future, and making sense of the world around us because we trust in the Son. The editor of Ecclesiastes has a warning for all of us. If you ever feel any inclination to leave this God, there is only destruction for all who walk away. If you ever have any inclination to walk away from the God who sustained you and made you, there is only ever destruction. But if you run to him and obey him, suddenly life makes sense. So he says, keep his commands. That's wisdom. It's the way to live with meaning, to recognize the reality of who God is, that eternity is in his hands, and to fear him, to run to him. But we get to see a type of clarity that the writer of Ecclesiastes and even the editor of Ecclesiastes never had to see, for we see the eye of the storm. We see Jesus. Listen to the writer of Hebrews who sees so clearly what is going on here. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that laid before him endured a cross and despised the shame and had sat down at the right hand of God's throne the author and perfecter of our faith, our trust, our reliance. So the miracle is that even that doesn't depend on you. That this God, this fearsome, terrifying God has died in your place and has offered you the trust so that you can run to him. As we stumble and stagger to come to Jesus, we have this great knowledge of the one who draws us to him, the author and perfecter of our faith who has done it all for us. What does obedience look like? Taking Jesus at his word. What do we come to the conclusion of in this book of Ecclesiastes? It's this. The conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, giving great thanks that we are in Jesus and never run away from God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we can just speak to you right now. That despite who you are and your power and might, that we can call you our dad because of Jesus. We want to give you great thanks for the hope that we have in Jesus. We ask that we would not domesticate you. That we would see you for who you are and realize the incredible privilege that it is to know you and know that our sin has been dealt with. Father, we pray that for those of us here that are still thinking through who Jesus is, that today they might see you clearly. Your spirit might show all of us again and refresh us on the amazing nature of what you've done for us. And that for each person here, that we would not run away from you. We would recognize the terror that awaits for those who do that. But we would run to you and see how as we do that, as we trust in your son, life makes sense. We live more than just now, but for eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.